I wouldn't be surprised if most people listening to this would say that due to the lockdown and the coronavirus situation, they have faced some fresh difficulty over the past few weeks and months now. And even if you're not facing a fresh difficulty, I would be surprised if there is zero difficulties in your life. There, even if that's just those things such as the, uh, the daily grind or, or the recurrent health issues or difficulties in relationships, either at work or in your street or in your family. There's all sorts of different difficulties that people say, uh, face. And what I want to think about tonight is what the Bible says about how Christians ought to respond to those difficulties. Now, we know in the New Testament, there's a lot about how we ought to respond to oppression and persecution when the world outside hates Christians. But today, I want to think more about those difficulties that we face that are just part of life. The things that get you down, the things that are hard to deal with, the griefs and the troubles and the worries that come to each and every one of us. How should Christians respond to those things? And what should we be reminding ourselves of and teaching ourselves if we're going to respond to them effectively? Now, I've chosen Psalm 39 to preach from because I think what's going on in Psalm 39 is David is wrestling with these very same issues. And so I'd encourage you to have Psalm 39 open on your laps or on your phones or however it is that you read it. And first, let's just get a a grasp of the psalm. What's going on here? Well, it's difficult to be certain exactly the situation that David is in when he has written this psalm. But there are one or two clues. So you could look at, for example, verse 10, uh, how David says to God, remove your scourge from me. A scourge is another word for a a plague uh, or, or an illness. So perhaps David is going through some severe illness. If you look at verse 12, uh, David is weeping. He's crying out to God for help. So there's clearly some significant level of suffering that David is going through. In verse 1 and in verse 8, David refers to the wicked. Uh, Verse 1, as long as the wicked are in my presence. Verse 8, the scorn of fools. So perhaps there's an element of, of oppression here that David is going through. And then also there's the issue of David's own sin. He mentions that in verse 8. He mentions the rebuke of God in verse 11. So perhaps David is going through some judgment. He's facing the consequences of his own sinful actions. It's hard to say exactly what is happening and what's caused David to, to pen this psalm. But let's move on now and think about, well, whatever it is that David's facing, how does he respond to it? Now, interestingly, first... He responds by making a vow of silence. I wonder if that's your response to difficulty. It's not often mine. My own response is often the opposite, perhaps. Um, But David makes a vow of silence. Verse 1 and 2, he says, I will watch my ways. I will keep my tongue from sin. I will put a muzzle on my mouth. I will stop myself from speaking. Okay, why would he do this? Why would he... uh, deny himself this opportunity. Again, I'm not certain. The psalm doesn't explain why, but there are some possibilities that you could guess at. Perhaps it's David trying to protect himself from complaining against God. If you know the story of Job in the Old Testament, you'll know that was his error. 
Perhaps David is trying to avoid confessing his sin in front of other people, his enemies. Maybe that's what verse 8 is talking about, the scorn of fools. They scorn him for his sin. Perhaps David is trying to avoid further sin. He doesn't want to condemn his enemies or, 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 or say things that are against them in a, in a harsh or rash way. And so he just decides, I'm going to keep quiet. Whatever David's reason for making the vow, the result is simply a silent endurance of whatever difficulty he's in. He keeps his mouth shut, he stays quiet, and he tries to ride it out. But you know how that feels, don't you? It's so difficult to do, especially for a prolonged period of time. And so what you find is, verse 3, my heart grew hot within me. As I meditated, the fire burned and I couldn't hold it in any longer. I spoke with my tongue. This psalm is basically a, a bursting out of all that David had inside him as he faces this difficulty, whatever that difficulty is in his life. And so let's move on now to think about this prayer that David eventually utters. Verse 4 This is what he asks of God. When he finally bursts out, he says, show me, O Lord, my life's end. Show me my life's end. I wonder, do you think it'd be a help or a hindrance if you knew the day that you were going to die? David asks, show me my life's end. I don't think he's actually saying, God, show me the date that I will die. If if you read again, verse four, show me my life's end. Show me the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting is my life. His prayer to God is that David would would feel a sense of the shortness of life, of the brevity, of his frailness. Now, what makes this prayer more interesting is that the next two verses indicate actually David already knows these things. The next two verses are David putting in very poetic and evocative language the exact thing that he's asked for God to show him. He prays in verse 5, you have made my days a mere handbreadth. He compares his number of years to like a span or a length of time. How long is his life then? Well, he's not talking miles. He's not even talking feet. He's talking the length of a handbreadth. He He recognises that as far as God is concerned, David is just a blip on the screen. Here today, gone tomorrow. He knows already how short his life is. He knows that his influence is limited. Man is a mere phantom as he goes to and fro. He's unable to engage or interact or change or influence the world around him. He's just a, a, a breath of wind, a spirit moving through it. That makes no lasting effect. His worries are but vanities. He bustles about, but only in vain. All those things which we worry and stress and and become anxious over are in the end vanities. They're empty. They're, They're worthless. They have no lasting consequence. And we heap up wealth, but we don't know who will get it. Life's endless drive, endless pursuit of more wealth, more success, more money, more goods, more houses, more cars, more more luxury 
is just a vanity. It doesn't satisfy and it doesn't last. And it gets passed on to someone else who you don't even have a say about. Now, if you've been watching the sermons that we've been doing here from Hollywell Church recently, you might feel, look, I've heard these lessons three or four times already in the last three weeks. We've heard about contentment. We've heard about treasures in heaven. We've heard about God shaking us up to reassess our priorities. We've heard about all these things that David seems to be talking about. Why do we need another sermon on the same thing? Well, look at what David is saying. David also knows these things. David knows how short life is. David knows how vain many of his pursuits are. David knows the emptiness of wealth. And yet, in his moment of difficulty, he prays to God, show me. Show me again. Show me more. Help me to feel it, not just in my mind, in my understanding. Help me not just to agree with it in theory, but help me to know it in my heart. Help me to live out these truths. Help my my time and and my money and my words and my judgments of other people and, and everything that I do reflect these things that I know are true. Show me what it means that life is short. Although David can agree in a theoretical sense that these things are true, those things have yet to settle in his heart and really make an impact on the way that he lives. How do I know that? But I take it from the way David does respond to his difficulty. Whatever difficulty he is in, he describes it as being overcome, verse 10. It it results in him being sorrowful, verse 13. He wants to rejoice and he can only rejoice once these difficulties have gone. It's these difficulties that have led to his anguish. But why should the loss of reputation, if that's what David's facing, why should the loss of reputation produce that kind of response, sorrow and anguish? Doesn't he know, David, don't you know that that God is our judge, not man? And so when you lose the reputation of the people around you, don't you know, David, that it, it doesn't matter so much as long as you are right with God? Of course he knows up here. But he doesn't yet know it here. Why should illness, if that's what David is facing, produce that kind of anguish and response? David, don't you know that your life is short and you have no control over the day that you will die? Of course he knows. He knows it here. But he wants to know it here. Why, David, should loss of wealth Why even should poverty produce that kind of response that you're going through, the anguish and the sorrow? Don't you know that wealth does not satisfy? It is a vanity. It's not worth chasing after. Of course he knows it here. He's able to tell you from here. But he wants to know it here. And so he prays, God, God, show me that I would really feel how brief life is. And so that my response to life's difficulties, to to whatever I face in life, would be an outworking of that truth coming from my heart, not just an intellectual assent. As I've been doing my studies for this psalm, I came across 
a particularly striking quote from a Scottish minister. He said, Everything difficult indicates something more than our theory of life yet embraces. I'll read that again. He says, Everything difficult indicates something more than our theory of life yet embraces. He means every time you go through a situation which we would class as difficult. Why is it difficult? And he is saying it's difficult because it's showing you that your heart, your worldview, your outlook on life, your theory of life, as he calls it, does not yet line up with the theory of life that God gives us in his word. Everything difficult indicates something more than our theory of life yet embraces. Why is it that financial uncertainty is a difficulty to us? Is it because we are so accustomed to trusting our own wealth and the means that we use to get that wealth that we are unable to believe the promises of God of his provision and care for us? Is that why it becomes a difficulty? Why is it that the energy that we have to put into raising our children and leading our families seems always so much more arduous and difficult than the energy that we would put into our office jobs and our vocations? Is it because, although we're happy to make claims of the, the, the vanity of wealth, in actual fact, we value those things and the things that our office jobs can bring us more than the treasure of building up and raising up and teaching our children well and the investment of time into our families. Why is it that loneliness leads us to self-pity? Is it because we don't really believe the reality of the presence of Jesus Christ with us? let alone ever experience that sweetness in our hearts? Why is it that a summer-long lockdown might fill you with dread? Why would that be a difficulty? Is it because we're depending upon the rest that we might find in that perfect summer holiday by the beach in the sun, rather than enjoying the rest that we have in Christ Jesus, the true rest and the true strength that we can gain from him. In short, why is any difficulty difficult? I think that's the question that David has stumbled across in his silent brooding over the situation that he's found himself in. He ponders it, he considers it, and he, and he asks, why is this difficult? Why is it hard? It's because I don't yet know in my heart those things that I'm willing to agree with in my head. It's because I don't yet see with God's eyes that the reality of the briefness of my life and the reality of the emptiness of the wealth that we chase and the reality of the, the worthlessness of the praise of man compared to the praise of God. He realises there's been something missing from his own theory of life, his own worldview. 
And so he prays, Lord, show me that weakness more fully. Show me how brief life is. Show me how inconsequential I really am. Show me how empty are all my desires and all the wealth that I chase after. Show me how worthless it all is. Now, I don't want at this point for you to think that I'm minimising all suffering as though suffering doesn't really matter. I'm not trying, by presenting this argument, to, to, to pin the blame for your difficulty on you as though simply your suffering is just a result of your own wrong response to an otherwise neutral situation. Now, that's, that's not the message of the Bible as a whole, and I don't think it's the message of even this psalm that we're reading. The psalm goes on in the second half. Verse 8 onwards I'm looking at now. David continues pleading and weeping with God for, for the removal of whatever difficulty it is that David is facing. And in fact, the, the psalm ends on a note of despair. God has given us these words of despair to use in our groaning. And the biblical approach to suffering is that, that God is bothered about it. Jesus engages heavily with it. And you could even, depending on how you, how you frame the, the, the story of the whole Bible, you could say that the whole plan of God has in some sense been working towards, from, from, from the time of Adam's first sin, God has been working towards a removal of all suffering. And the promises in the, in the gospel are the first taste of that removal. Yet David's cry in this psalm highlights such an important principle that we so easily forget when we do begin to engage with suffering. Far from being dismissive of your suffering, God actually is engaged in your suffering. God is not standing back and watching it from a distance. David begins to realise God is in this suffering that I face. God is in this difficulty. Verse 9, you are the one who has done this. Whatever difficulty it is that David is facing, he now realises it has come from God's own hand. And yes, that doesn't stop David from wanting it to be removed. But it does mean that his suffering is no longer one of those empty vanities of life. That just make life difficult. And, and it's not something that lacks purpose. He even hints at the purpose. Verse 11, you rebuke and discipline. Suffering can be God teaching us a lesson. God can sometimes consume our wealth, consume the things that we enjoy in order to teach us and correct us and set us back on the right path. Other parts of scripture give us other uses of God's uh, using suffering. To prove our faith or to mould us into a person more like Jesus. David sees his suffering as God's discipline against him. Just like a father disciplines and trains his own children. And although it's painful at the time, David realises it isn't without purpose. It has value. And so he needn't simply look for the quickest way out. Instead... David's response is, verse 7, my hope is in you. David's fresh realisation of the frailty of life 
prompts him to reconsider really what is it that he has been working for. What has he been pinning his hopes on? What is he ambitious for? David's hope, he says, is God himself. David's hope, his expectation that things will turn out for good is in God. That's where David's expectation lies. That's what he means when he says, my hope is in you. He expects this to turn out for good, not because of his abilities, not because of his wealth, not because of the community that he's part of, not because of the passage of time. His hope is not in those things. Those things will not fix the issue that he faces. God will bring it to rights. David reasons that because his ambitions are so closely tied to God himself, that whatever he faces, therefore, he will end up being satisfied. David reasons that because his highest joy is to be known as a child of God, then whatever he faces, that joy cannot be stolen from him. David reasons that because his priority is securing the approval of God rather than the approval of the people around him, then even the scorn of his enemies is nothing to fear. And even though his life might be end up cut short, he will remain eternally significant. Not just eternally existent, eternally significant in the hand of God. Contrast that to the emptiness of seeking your significance in this life. We are but a breath, a vanity, an emptiness. Our life is what you've got left once you've popped the soap bubble. Nothing, just a mist in the air, ready to be blown away by the wind. In fact, David has come to see that unless his hope is in God, unless his hope is in God rather than those other things, then whatever pleasures or successes or wealth or enjoyment he has in life, whatever he has ultimately comes to nothing. None of it is important. None of it is reliable. Because in the end, it all disappears. It's all burnt up and washed away. But on the other hand, when you have hope in God, all of life has significance. The enjoyments of life, the, the, the joys of food and wine and relationship and pleasure and vocation all become means of glorifying God, pleasing him, serving him, using his creation for the purposes that he intended. Your works of service and your obedience and the, the sweat and toil that you put into life for the sake of other people don't just become a taking away from you. They become a service toward God, which earns you an eternal reward. And yes, when your hope is in God, even your difficulties, even your suffering is used by God to discipline, to test, to shape and to mould us into the person that he most wants us to be. To mould us to the shape of life of Jesus Christ, our Saviour, with whom we will spend 
all of eternity. So in the difficulties of life, whether those difficulties have been brought on by coronavirus or whether you've been battling them for years, will you this evening take the opportunity with David to pray, Lord, show me my life's end. Show me how fleeting, show me how empty, show me how unimportant, show me how unreliable are all those things in this life that I tend to put my trust in. Show me so that I would stop putting my trust in them. Show me so that I might see the contrast of those things against the glory and the goodness and the solidity of you yourself. And as you face perhaps financial uncertainty, would this lead you not to hope in yourself, but to hope in God as your provider? As you face the daily grind of raising your children and caring for them, would you accept the task from God's hand and prioritise it accordingly and work in the strength and the grace that he gives? And would you work your office jobs in the same way, working to honour God rather than to build a name for yourself? And as you face the perhaps despair of the lockdown being extended throughout all of summer and perhaps into the new year even, would you realise that there are greater joys to be had from life even than the most luxurious holiday that you were hoping to go on? Or conversely, as you face the threat of lockdown being lifted early and the risk of the, the virus coming knocking on your door, will you see that there is more to life than this life itself? Would you hope in God and know that even if your time here is cut short, you have an eternity of joy and pleasure and God's goodness to enjoy? Hoping in God doesn't prevent you from seeking out the benefits of life, but it does allow you to enjoy them in the context of what is really true and valuable. It's a lesson that we all need, that we all need moving from our heads down to our hearts so that our lives and our responses to difficulty might bring an appropriate response of the truth that God's word gives us.